genuinely. What? 1v1. Oh, well, yeah, 1v1. Exactly. Welcome to 1 versus 1 Iron Duke style. Stick you up. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. The police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Zip it, sweetie, I'm getting there. Mr. Speaker, they say a week is a long time in politics. Aloha from Lambton Key, Bulavanaka from the Beehive, and hello from Hawaii. Welcome back to another wonderful episode of the Iron Duke podcast, where we take you through policy, politics, our peaks and our pits, and anything that fits. I'm Byron Terrace, and joined with me today in the studio is Madison Burgess-Smith. How are you, Maddie? Fantastic. Huge episode ahead, isn't it? Oh, massive. Huge. We're covering the world. Ashley Bloomfield, James Shaw, foot and mouth disease, and... To Pookie. To Pookie. Right. Take us away. What's your pick of the week? My pick of the week, a politician's holiday and a very important holiday location um, to, to, uh, to Pookie, uh, Hawaii, Waikiki. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, was, I too was confused where Chris Luxon was for the week where everyone noticed he just wasn't in New Zealand. Ian New Luxon had flown over to do a five-day holiday with his family, as he usually does. In July. In July. He wanted to make New Zealanders feel like he was still here, so his social media team went and put a post from Kiwi Fruit Country to Pookie while he was in fact on holiday. And I just think the reason this is my peak of the week is because it's led to this kind of, I don't know, the lightheartedness of New Zealand coming through, which I think is really good. We're really kind of talking about a politician's holiday and it's come. some of the discourse has come through and it's like, oh, should politicians take holidays? And it's like, well, yeah, of course, that is working people. For goodness sake, Jesus. Oh, shouldn't they be They're not spe- even that good. <laughs> shouldn't they be spending their money in New Zealand? Just like, well, they've been doing that for the last two and a half years with the rest of us. So if they want to go overseas, sure, that's fine. And also, if you remember my peak of the week last week was more New Zealanders than ever. 40% more than in 2019 are interested in travelling offshore. And clearly, Luxon and his family was one of those people. It's shown a light-hearted side of politics and one that I think old Luxo will come back from. Well, I think history will repeat itself. One of the news outlets this morning were talking about the curse that is Hawaii to yeah, the National yeah. Party. Back in oh, 2009, Rodney Hyde paid for a trip with him and his girlfriend, which sounds gross. You know, it's it a just, girlfriend, ugh. Rodney Hyde, yeah. $10,000 worth of taxpayers' funds paid for them to go on holiday. And then John Key, one of his spawn, I'm not going to out him on one air. One of his spawn, did one you of, say? One of spawn. John Key's spawn put out word. quite a tasteless kind of YouTube equivalent video of their illustrious holiday whilst Kiwis were facing a housing crisis. Is that the same housing <laughs> crisis from 2015 that we're still got? Is that why we're angry at Christopher? Is, huh? He, he only owns seven houses, come on. He's not like- They did have to clarify that he wasn't staying at John Key's house. <laughs> But was he playing golf with the Obamas? I think we need to get to the bottom of that. We do. And Sorry, last one. Yeah, sure. Simon Bridges oh, no. ditched Anzac Day in 2018. Simon. How did he do that? in the Cuds. Oh, no. To Hawaii. Simon, why'd you do that? But Yeah, we'll get him on the podcast now that he's not a politician. Do you know who else is a blue team player that spends a lot of time in Hawaii? It's not you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to make a Lilo and Stitch joke. That's an absolute stitch up. Maddie, what is your peak of the week? My peak of the week has been the valiant cry of Ashley Bloomfield on his <laughs> on his last day. 
before he goes on to fluoridate the last 14 regions in New Zealand who are probably anti-vax, probably anti-5G. Those people who don't care about the tooth quality of their children under the new legislation that just came into force, he talked about how proud he was for his final decision as Director General of Health to be enforcing these dumb fuck councils <laughs> to fluoridate their water. He also turned around and said, Health New Zealand's going to fail unless you bring people along for the ride. Do you know what the people I'm along sure. for the ride keep saying? Yeah. It's going to fail because we're fail. not along for the ride. Look, there is a senior official who has spent a lot of time on the ground, knows his people well, comes out of the industry, and over the last week hasn't been afraid to tell it how it is to leave New Zealand in a better shape than he found it, and I think he is a mighty fine New Zealander. There was a bit of controversy around how close he got to politics in the end, but I do think he deserves good time off, and those two parting shots were pretty good, though. Like, you know, here are the 14 councils, I'm naming names, the absolute losers who don't give a shit about tea. How embarrassing would it be to be on a council where your water's not fluoridated? Now, Wellington's water wasn't fluoridated for a long Five time. Five years, but we all thought it was because, yeah, well, you know, we're huh? a relatively educated electorate of New Zealand. New Zealand? I actually presented uh, at the Palmerston North City Council to fluoridate our water at the age of 11. I gave an oral submission on why we should have fluoride in the water. It can't all be good in the world, as our last two picks have said. And it isn't. And before I put my foot in my mouth, we're going to talk about foot and mouth. Foot and mouth is a disease that could absolutely ravage our primary industries. It has done so in the UK, caused major food and dairy shortages, and really knocks economies to the ground. It has been discovered in Indonesia, and that's pretty close geopolitically and also geographically to our biggest trading partner, Australia. So Australia has now implemented a whole bunch of serious border controls to try and keep foot and mouth out of their country and in Indonesia and not in Australia. (laughs) Indonesia. Indonesia. And it got to the point where a number of rural activists were saying, close the borders, shut it down from Indonesia. The reason that's important and it's why it's such a worry is because in the past where this has affected economies, like I said, it brings them to their knees. And last time I checked, New Zealand sends quite a lot of dairy overseas. And foot and mouth would ravage this country in completely different ways than COVID. Similar to Mycoplasma bovis? Yeah, Mycoplasma bovis. It would be like that, but on steroids. Right. It would be horrific. The number of livestock that would need to be destroyed in a very short term would ruin rural communities, ruin families' lives, um, devalue farm prices, all of that kind of stuff. It would be absolutely detrimental. How does it spread? Nose to nose. Kids get foot and mouth disease, don't they? Is it the same one? It's related, but the thing with the bovine order it is livestock one is it's the saliva. It's that kind of stuff. Oh, and you so know what cows you get do? It from hooking up with other cows. Yeah, well, you know what cows do? They look everything. Really big worry, and the Prime Minister and Damon O'Connor, the Minister for Agriculture, are taking this very seriously. And I think New Zealand's biosecurity service will do a good job to keep it out of the country. But to those people travelling overseas to Hawaii or wherever else, Indonesia, um, you know, do be cautious about what you bring back to New Zealand because you could absolutely destroy our economy with one apple. That cow's licked. Yeah, cow's licked. Or, you know, it's you've been on a farm, you know, when you fill out the form and it says, have you been on any farms in the last two weeks? And or you often? always say no. And even though you were staying on a farm stay, you say no because you don't want to piss off the biosecurity officer. Now's the time to just declare it. I actually always, I always say where I've been and I always get all my stuff sprayed. Do you know why? Actually, sprayed. The, the line is often faster if you declare stuff. Amazing. You don't. It's incredible. And when you say sprayed, you mean like with a bit of perfume, but it's Mark Jacobs. No, I'm pretty sure it's just like chlorine. <laughs> oh, that smells great. It's, it's brilliant. What's this mustard gas? Anyway, <laughs> what's your that was pit of the week? 
Byron, my pit of the week is our good friend James Short. Now, we've discussed our fandom for James Short a couple of times on this podcast. Obviously, Iron Duke Politician of the Year, 2020, 2021. Great guy. Someone. By someone, I mean a very small minority of the Green Party membership. The Young Greens. Probably everyone I know is a Young Green. It's probably so common to be a Young Green that you don't tell people that you're a Young Green in the city. It's like baby sprouts or baby carrots. You see them every now and again. (laughs) And they're expensive. Yeah, Young Greens. (laughs) That's exactly what they are. Champagne socialist level expensive. That's right, little baby carrots. And some members of the Green Left Network, that is the most left-wing people on the planet, uh, decided that James Shaw was no longer fit to be leader of their party. They rallied against him at the national AGM. Now, keep in mind, this sounds like a massive movement. So there were like 130-something people at that AGM, and it's a quarter of all those people decided that they wanted to reopen the candidacy for the leadership so that someone, (coughs) Chloe Swarbrick, could contest James Shaw to be leader. What they failed to do in that whole process was ask anyone else in the party... To stand at him. Chloe Swarbrick, if they were going to stand. Mm. What they've done is they've embarrassed James Shaw, who's an incredibly effective minister, an incredibly effective co-leader, and an incredibly effective advocate for climate change, Mm. and then embarrassed their whole party and made everyone look really messy. Going into the next election... Ardern can't afford for her coalition partner to be making these sorts of unforced errors. Unforced error is a really good way to describe this. I mean, we've known, certainly in the Beltway, that Shaw's uh, co-leadership was no sure thing. It was always up for kind of question. There was always a movement kind of simmering away. They didn't like him. And it was for petty things like, oh, he wears a suit and tie. It was kind of for, he's too businesslike. He's from PwC, the big evil corporate. Yeah, they just don't think he's radical enough. What they forget is that he has to build consensus within parties Parliament to achieve climate change goals. And he's been incredibly effective at that. Look at the zero carbon bill. In fact, go down to Parliament and ask a whole bunch of MPs who they think the most effective minister has been over the last five years. And I'm going to say half of them would point to the work of James Shaw. Do you know who people wouldn't point to? She's pointing at me right now. It's quite intense. The other half of the co-leadership, Marama Davidson. Oh, yeah. Why did no one challenge her? Do Kiwis even know who she is? Uh... I, I don't think so. And the minister for home, she's the minister for homelessness, and it took her, I think, two. No, it took her a year to put out a press release as the minister for homelessness. Anyway, she's useless. To Byron's point, we've known this was a while coming. At their last conference, they changed their constitution so that the leadership could be a female and anyone else instead of female male. And while that sounded like a really progressive, oh, you know, we're going to get like greater diversity. No, they just wanted to see Marama Davidson and Chloe Swarbrick. This loud pesty little collective of sprouts, as Byron puts it. I'm a big James Shaw fan. I recognise that he brings a whole demographic of voters to the Green Party that without that business look, that safe pair of hands, that type of leadership that can show real common sense in terms of solving problems, they wouldn't have. That's my pet of the week. You feel better? <sighs> a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. That's why we started this podcast, listeners. That's created a lot of impact. It was a highly impactful conversation, but we're going to talk about impact investing. We're going to talk about the World Economic Forum uh, with someone who we've really liked to work with over the last few years. So let's hear from Jackson Rowland. 
Today we are joined by the director of Arkina Invest, also known as Director Impact Investing, pick a job title. Whatever you like. Jackson Rowland. Jackson, kia ora and thank you so much for joining us. Kia ora koutou. Good morning. So tell us about Impact Investing. What yes. is this? Is this just some buzzwords about putting your money in some place to have a nice outcome? Basically. Yes. But very important buzzword. I genuinely think it can change the world and I think you know this impact wave that a lot of us in my bubble at least are seeing is here to stay, I think. A lot of us are familiar with traditional investment where we're investing intentionally to generate a financial return. Impact investing is that, you're intentionally generating a financial return generally, but also intentionally generating impact. It's the same action, but you're looking to receive financial return and an impact return, and that's what we're trying to build in New Zealand. Prime Minister Ardern would call that double duty, wouldn't she? So impact investing, how big is it globally? Yeah, over a trillion dollars and the market's doubling year on year. So for the past three or four years, it's been growing almost exponentially. So New Zealand's absolutely a bit behind the rest of the world in terms of kind of time we've been doing this. And that was one of the reasons Arkina took up this mantle of really trying to build the market. That I know of, there's about $200 million worth of impact investment funds being worked on at the moment. So when you think about the size of kind of the active private impact investment market, it's a smaller part of that 3.3 billion. That's generally green bonds and the like. The private equity part of that is much smaller, but growing significantly with 200 odd million coming on board. What do some of those investment opportunities in New Zealand look like? Yeah, well, I have to say some of the best would be within the Impact Enterprise Fund. Uh, it's a New Zealand's first impact investing fund that launched four years ago. Arkina, along with Impact Ventures and New Ground Capital, we came together to say, hey, look, you know, this is growing rapidly around the world, so we need to get involved in this as well. That's a plug, everybody, just mm. by the way. Coincidentally, plug. $10 million we managed to raise back in 2017, and we've since been investing that across high growth, high impact kind of startup social enterprises across New Zealand. We've now made 10 investments and closed that portfolio. The highlights would be the likes of Grounded Packaging. It's a sustainable packaging business that creates compostable, recyclable forms of packaging to replace single-use plastics. They started, we were one of their first investors in New Zealand, and they're currently expanding around the world and growing significantly, so that's really exciting. ZeroJet's another one I I love to mention. They make electric boat engines, so they would love to be the Tesla of boats. And it's amazing when you hear that boat engines generally can emit about 40 times the amount of carbon dioxide as cars. But they just haven't had the attention that car engines have to make them more efficient. ZeroJet is trying to change that and make electric engines the way of the future and significantly improve the environment in the process. Recently, you got to explore the idea of impact investing on the global stage at the World Economic Forum. Tell us a bit more about what that is. It was the first meeting they'd held in the past couple of years because of the pandemic, but it generally is an annual meeting that happens in January each year in Davos, Switzerland, where leaders from around the world and influencers come together to hopefully collaborate and improve the world a bit. The World Economic Forum's purpose is to improve the world through public-private collaboration, and this is one of the main platforms they have to do that. So there's 2,000 different people that come together from around the world, hundreds of political leaders coming together to learn together, and importantly have really open discussions that lead to positive good. A number of collaborative conversations happened that were action-focused, and some action came from it. What's the buzz like? You know, is there hundreds of people going to different rooms? What kind of rooms you were in? Give us a bit of a flavour about the kind of things that you talked about and learnt. Yeah. yeah. Who was the most famous person you saw? Going from New Zealand and, and our kind of lovely lockdown place for the past couple of years to one, getting on a plane was an unusual feeling. And then two, landing in this small town and going into a conference centre with 2,000 other people was mind blowing to say the least. And the calibre of the people was exceptional. So you literally would see Bill Gates walking down the hallways. Nice. Um, the, probably the highlight that I got to speak to was Mariana Mazzucuto, the amazing oh, yeah. economist, the which economist, I encourage yeah. you all to follow if you haven't. 
people like that were sitting around you. Um, naturally, there were lots of smaller rooms where some of these people spent most of the time and you couldn't pester them too much. There were strict instructions to not ask for too many selfies. But yeah, the, these people are wandering around and you can genuinely strike up a conversation with them. So it was pretty impressive to be amongst that and particularly coming from New Zealand. What were some of the exciting takeaways for you in the impact investing space? Yeah, so there, I mean, there was so much in there. It was interesting thinking about, I immersed myself in impact investing in social enterprise, and so I was naturally quite interested to see how that was going to be discussed at that you know significantly large, influential platform. And to be honest, it wasn't. There was some references, I think maybe I heard two references of social enterprise, both within a panel talking about emerging economies and small businesses in emerging economies. And naturally, social enterprises are an important concept there. I think 70% of new jobs in emerging countries are from small businesses. So yep. some mentions of it there, but generally it wasn't mentioned and nor was impact investing. Actually, to the contrary, ESG was unsurprisingly mentioned a lot, environmental, social and governance screening. One very experienced investor said that the system is working and ESG is perfect and it is working really well for the world. Um, Wish their fund all the best. Wow. Precisely. Yeah, and yeah, you know, private jet works pretty well. Precisely. So, I mean, it was that kind of thing that did leave me a bit sceptical, I guess, and concerned when I was in the room. But uh, thinking about it more broadly, it's, it's got me thinking, you know, is that an important thing? Is it a bad thing? Is impact investing just a buzzword? And where I've kind of concluded that I do think it's important that these words weren't mentioned and I think it's something that needs to change is because of the mindsets it represents. And so ESG, for example, is very much compliance focused. Same with TCFD and the like is there's legislation or consumer pressure for businesses to respond to these requirements. Mm -hmm. And so it's a compliance mindset that the business has to tick the box. What it's not is a more positive, optimistic mindset Mm -hmm. of how do we improve the world? What more can we do to generate value for us, for our business, but also the world? And that's where impact investing comes in. That's where social enterprise comes in. These are all levers that businesses can pull to improve the world. To do so, they need to switch that mindset from merely ticking the box to thinking actually what more can we do that will build our business and improve the world at the same time. You know, again, I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but thinking about the work that Arkina does, you know, we're helping businesses see this. We're talking to them about social procurement and re- helping them realise how easy it is to incorporate impact-focused organisations into your supply chain, and through that, you know, significantly increasing your impact and your business value without changing your core product or service at all. There's a perception that it's going to hinder the business. Your business will fall over if you do anything too crazy. But actually, there's so many opportunities that are so easy and will significantly improve the business. What do businesses <coughs> in New Zealand? What does the the investment community need to do to get there. Part of New Zealand's strength has always been theoretically how easy it is for us to do things. I know I know we get caught up in how some of the challenges that New Zealand might face, but when you think about it on the global scale, it is significantly easier to do almost anything here than it is in any other place in the world. So we need to make the most of that and start setting the example for the rest of the world to follow around the, the good things we can do to, dem- to improve the world. And then the larger economies, etc., can hopefully follow suit and do the same. There's billions of dollars invested in New Zealand amongst institutions institutional investors, our KiwiSavers and the like. Some KiwiSavers are and I really applaud them and I hope that others can see that as an example to say actually this is possible, it's not illegal, let's look at how we can put impact investments into our portfolio and significantly improve the good we're doing through that. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, you know, thinking about the broader initiatives that organisations can do again with that lens of how do we improve the world, improve our communities rather than just sell our good and service. Generally we're seeing it more and more that will increase the value of the business in doing so. Ride that impact wave. That's right, all the way to New York. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. As is tradition on the Iron Duke podcast, we finish every interview with a very quick fire, hot or not. If you like it, it's hot. If you don't, it's not. From the last seven days, Jackson, what are your thoughts on James Shaw's leadership being challenged? 
Yeah, hot. I like James Shaw, but um, a challenge is always good. Nice. What are your thoughts on nursing students up in Auckland getting paid in countdown vouchers to backfill the labour shortages in their hospitals? Not. And lastly, MPs transitioning into local government. Not. Uh, very simply, uh, Tapuki. Hot. Uh, Hawaii. Hot. Your social media team being in the wrong place. <laughs> Hot. <laughs> I love it. Jackson, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated your energy and also really respect the work that you do. I'm glad you had a good time in Davos and enjoy New York. Thank you very much, both of you.